It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As a nation, it turns out we are what we drink. It's not how much we drink necessarily, but how we drink. There's almost a cult around it at times in people's lives. That struck me as not uniquely British, but quite profoundly British. For many of us, the essence of a good time is a glass of something. And of a better time, a second glass. We may get legless, but it isn't harmless. Heavy drinking costs the NHS about £3.5 billion a year. Something like 40% of violent incidents recorded are thought to involve someone who's under the influence of alcohol. So what, for good or ill, does our drink habit say about us Brits? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, booze Britain, a country on the lash. A confession. Apart from the inevitable teenage mishap, I never really got alcohol as a pastime. I'm no Puritan and have come to appreciate a decent red, which is about a continent away from the bladdered-up football fans who trashed Leicester Square a few weeks ago. But that's exactly it. Alongside the fun and partying, we have the A&E wards suffering the weekend binge surge and the slow, desperate self-pickling in tidy suburbs. It is often described as one of life's simple pleasures, having a drink. England and Wales have seen a worrying spike in alcohol-related deaths, according to newly released figures. Young people are coming in on a daily basis, worse wear from alcohol, and that we're seeing some serious illnesses and serious injuries occurring. Whether it's the casual drinking habits of the nation or the more serious problems caused by addiction, it's clear Britain as a drinking problem that needs to be addressed. I am special correspondent at the Sunday Times, which is a role that often raises eyebrows because it's quite nebulous. It basically means roving around Britain, doing kind of state-of-the-nation type pieces. You may remember Josh Glancy as the Sunday Times man in Washington, but now he's back in the UK with a new job title and a new role. At the moment, I seem to be a sort of booze correspondent. I've been in Bournemouth, I've been in Marbella, I've been in Sheffield. I seem to spend a lot of time drinking beer with, with Brits this summer. <laughs> okay, now our subject today is the British and drinking. So let's put our cards on the table here at the beginning. Do you drink a lot? 
Yeah, I think I probably do, to be honest. Probably since university days, I've been a fairly heavy drinker. And by fairly heavy, I probably mean three, four nights a week, probably once to excess. But it was interesting. I drank quite a lot less in America, where the culture around it is quite different. So part of the reason I wanted to do a big piece on drinking in Britain was because I I suddenly noticed I came home in May and suddenly I realised I was drinking four, five, even six nights a week when it had previously been two or three. So it was quite a sharp contrast for me. Josh did what writers do and put that summer of transatlantic imbibing to good use, reporting for the Sunday Times magazine on British drinking attitudes. I was fascinated to see how our drinking habits might have changed during the pandemic. Were people drinking more at home? Were they drinking more or were they drinking less? There was this very eye-catching stat I saw showing that deaths related to alcohol misuse were at their highest level for 20 years in in 2020, over 7,000. So clearly there was people having some problems with alcohol. And then there were these kind of anecdotal reports coming in from all over the newsroom about the clink of bottles outside their house every morning during lockdown, this surge people felt in in middle-class wine drinking at home during the various periods of isolation. So I kind of wanted to take the temperature of the nation. And it was also, as I said in the piece, it was kind of a personal thing of feeling, well, I'm back in Britain now. I want to kind of know my own country again. And I think to really do that, I felt like I had to sort of go out and get hammered (laughs) at least once. (laughs) And so, like a sort of booze anthropologist, Josh headed to Sheffield. I've always quite liked the town, so when I was offered the choice of where to go, it seemed like a good one. It's got a huge student population. You've got the two big universities there, Hallam and Sheffield University. It's a fun town, but it's also the case that there is a bit of a regional divide in the way we drink, and the heaviest classic binge drinking does still happen much more up north than it does down south, so I wanted to go somewhere north of the Watford Gap. Right, so... You think Sheffield's the place where you can tell some of your story from. And so what's the plan? You check into a hotel and then go seeking for boozers? Yeah, pretty much. It was. I'd had an extremely busy week, actually. And so I turned up in Sheffield sort of Friday afternoon. It was pouring with rain and I had basically made no plans. (laughs) I'd done some reporting around it, talking to experts and things. But I met my photographer, Peter, chucked my bags in the hotel room went out and for the first two hours it was deeply unpromising it was drizzling down it was gray we were pretty sober and I thought how's this gonna work and eventually we got a couple of pints down us and found some friendly locals and it started to warm up really and the night went from there let's suppose I'm from Mars and I don't really know what you mean by it starts to warm up and I don't really understand from what you've said already where you've actually gone to meet people so tell me a bit more So the arc of Friday night in particular in a town like Sheffield is immediately after work, you've got end of the week drinks, a lot of colleagues sitting around. So we went to a couple of bars. The Forum is a big one, sat outside uh, under some wet umbrellas. And people are sort of having pints, debating the week's work, bitching about their colleagues and gossiping and that sort of thing. Um, just loosening up really. And so we joined them, but it was a little stiff at first. And that's, you know, the, the way... Any drinker will know it's a process of kind of physically, you know, in the same way that a a sportsman would sort of warm up into a game. You have a couple of drinks, you start to feel the alcohol in your bloodstream, you loosen up and conversation starts to flow. As a reporter, even though I've reported from all over the world at this point, you still have that initial shyness, that initial weirdness of going up to people in a bar and 
asking them about their drinking habits and their lockdown habits. And so you do need a little bit of Dutch courage to do that. I've always been very bad at talking to people in bars. So I had to sort of gird myself to go and do that. Uh, so yeah, that was how it started. So there was a bunch of colleagues, uh, two in particular called Leah and Dave, who are from a teaching college in Rotherham. And they're just having a laugh about their jobs. But you also met middle-aged women in their 50s who were kind of lecturers at the universities and teachers. And they were getting together for a 50th birthday. And they're the G&T in one hand, kind of glass of Pinot Grigio in the other. It was just as lockdown was ending six weeks ago. And people were really getting out and about seeing each other properly for the first time. Although it was drizzling and raining and, and not that promising outside, there was a sense of kind of euphoria just at being out with your mates again after it's obviously been a, a long year. Sorry, did you say a glass of Pinot Grigio in one hand and a G&T in the other? Yeah. It's called double fisting in the, the sort of millennial lingo, but it's um, wine and a cocktail to sort of get you drunk quicker, I suppose. There's this real inflection point in the evening and as it gets dark and suddenly the, the whole mood of the town and the, the kind of raucousness goes up a, at least two gears as the kind of end of week drinkers go home. They're really just toasting the end of the week. And a lot of the heavy drinkers do what they call pre-loading or pre-gaming. And that's the more the sort of younger drinkers because it's just a lot cheaper and, and sometimes funner to get loaded up at home. And then you're gonna hit the more disco bars and clubs. I mean, it was really, really noticeable about 9.30, 10 p.m. And so who did you meet after 9.30 p.m.? Where did you go after you'd done the initial ones? So I met some groups of lads. They were kind of finding their way out, places like Walkabout and Weatherspoons, which are the kind of standard cheap booze. You can have three or four pints and a couple of mixers and probably not spend more than 15 quid. They're going out on the pool, going out on the, on, the, on the piss, as they would say, but they're really getting lubricated, probably planning to go clubbing. And then at Weatherspoons, which is really the cheapest drinks you can get out anywhere, there's a lot of young students. I met a really lovely gang of Sheffield freshers who had never legally been to a nightclub before because the nightclubs hadn't been open for the whole time that they'd been 18. So they were incredibly excited about their first legal trip to a nightclub. I didn't ask them how many illegal nightclub trips they'd been on, but it was like, <laughs> there was a real sense of uh, thrill for them. So far, so wonderfully benign and everybody's having a lot of fun and they're all kind of getting ready to get uh, a very drunk and so on. But you wanted to investigate booze culture in Britain and I don't imagine you were doing that because you wanted to tell the story of what a lot of fun people were having. Well, yeah, it's a mixed story, isn't it? We're quite introverted people. We can be quite repressed emotionally. And I think alcohol really helps us connect to one another, particularly I find men who are bad at connecting emotionally. But there is, as you allude to, obviously... <laughs> a cost to all of this. According to Public Health England, between 2019 and 2020, the number of deaths from alcoholic liver disease rose by over 20%. Numbers rose dramatically when people began going into lockdown. At the beginning. In 2020, deaths related to alcohol misuse hit 7,423, which was the highest number in 20 years. So it was clear to me that problem drinking, if you like, had gone up and that the sort of misery and isolation of lockdown was affecting some people quite badly in terms of alcohol. So I was quite curious to see, now that we were coming out of this kind of 18 month period of isolation, had our drinking habits changed? Was there gonna be this kind of 
explosion. And we saw at the Euros, I think there was a lot of pent up energy and desire to get really hammered that obviously got a bit out of control. But then there's also an, an interesting fact that has been reported over the last few years that younger people are actually drinking less. There was an astonishing discovery in this piece that more under 24s don't drink at all than any other age cohort in Britain. So some of the most abstemious people in Britain are late teens, early 20s students, which has astonished me. Coming up, how British drinking habits have changed. But first... Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerins, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine you're walking down the high street and come across an immense billboard, all lit up and colourful. Coming to a venue near you, it says, is the don't-miss event of the summer. Madame Coco's Ketamine and Cocaine Night. All you can snort or drop for 50 quid. Tickets available now. Must be 18. Well, it's absurd, isn't it? Impossible. Except that if you visit London Bridge Station, as I did last week, you'll come across a huge advert for Mr Tipsy's Down the Hatch, an immersive cocktail experience like never before. For £39.50, you can enjoy live actors, music, dance and video projections in what's billed as a refreshing post-lockdown thirst quencher. My guess is that you'll find similar offers to quench your thirst in almost any town or city across the country. This following a record year for alcohol-related deaths. But is this just the way it's always been? 
there's this amazing graph that our data team put together showing drinking habits over the, the last 120 years. What's fascinating is our drinking peaked at around 1900 and is, even now is lower than it was then. So in one sense, we drink less as a nation than we have done historically. But over the course of the century, it really cratered from about 1920 through to about 1970. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. One is the world wars, as you mentioned. They made licensing laws a lot stricter during World War I. They were very worried about the sort of national health and productivity. And they wanted to win the wars. They didn't want everyone getting hammered at home. That had a huge effect. Hundreds of thousands of young men were also killed, which obviously sort of heavy drinking age men were, were taken out of the population. That obviously happened again in the Second World War. And so you have this huge dip mid-century, but then it really starts to climb in the 70s and 80s. And there are a number of reasons for this. One is booze starts to get a lot cheaper, a lot more affordable. Another is the changing gender roles. So women are out and about much more. Having women in the pub is a much more common thing. Women are starting to earn their own money more and will spend it. So you have this growth in female drinking throughout the latter half of the 20th century. And then in the 90s, 2000s, which you know we'll both remember, you have a sort of lad culture explosion. It's very permissive. And there's a real sort of sense of hedonism. I suppose the economy is very strong. And so drinking has risen since then, really, and has now sort of plateaued. It's not just how much we drink that has changed, but what we drink. And what's also fascinating is it's just the growth of wine. You'll remember from when you were younger that buying decent wine in Britain was not necessarily that easy 40 years ago, 30 years <laughs> ago. But now you can get you know, a bottle of Sancerre in, in Sainsbury's for 15 quid and it's really good. So, yeah. so it's quite appealing to a lot of people. Somebody tweeted the other day about something which I completely forgotten, which is something called Hirondelle. Choosing a wine that you can depend on to please even the less discriminating palate can be difficult. Which was a wine, I think, of the 70s or 80s, which was advertised as a wine from many different European countries. <laughs> Perhaps he should have chosen Hirondelle. Imagine anybody wanting to buy that now. So your point is extremely well made. So you've talked about two things, the rise in wine drinking and also the rise in the ability to drink alcohol cheaply. Now, that last one is a big one, isn't it? It certainly is. The change in wine drinking from 1960 to 2020 must have gone up by about 10 times. So wine used to be quite an elite thing, uh, and it's now a pretty mass consumption drink. We're so much more sophisticated. I mean, you see this in the way we eat now, the sort of globalisation of food in Britain. It's the same with wine, Californian Pinot Noirs or Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand. Uh, we think globally about wine. And then you have cocktail culture too, the whole rise of the mixologist. The cocktail used to just be a gin and tonic. I mean, now you have these incredibly elaborate cocktail bars in towns all over England and people mixing at home. And that's all happened really in the last 20, 20, 30 years, I think. Hoping for barbecue weather? Pop to Asda and get the drinks in. Get three beer and cider packs for just £21. And two bottles of wine for just £10. And what about cheap supermarket booze? This is where maybe you get onto sort of more of the, the kind of problem drinking side of things. I mean, there was a stat from the Alcohol Health Alliance showing that cider is being sold for as little as 19p per unit in some off-licenses and supermarkets. You can obviously get catastrophically drunk uh, very, very cheaply at that price. And that's where some people are anxious about that and think that we need to have minimum 
pricing around alcohol, which obviously is resisted by quite powerful companies that make the stuff. So essentially, we've got a better choice in alcohol. Some alcohol is very much cheaper. Let's look at what you discovered about various things. You hinted at things about the age divide, but also about how things divide up by class, by gender, and by geography, if we have any stats. Yeah, so the kind of classic binge drinking, if you like, it does adhere to the stereotype that it is a more northern activity. You can look at places like Blackpool, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, and they'll be top of a lot of the stats for kind of the negative consequences, things like hospitalizations around alcohol. In terms of gender, so kind of what I was talking about earlier, you know, females now obviously drink a lot more than they did 50 years ago. But we have this stereotype that North Europeans binge drink to obliteration and South Europeans drink in moderation. They drink with food. They'll tend to drink wine rather than spirits. There's quite a lot of truth in that for men. For women, it actually tends to be much more similar. So a, an English or Scottish woman is likely to drink similarly to a French or an Italian woman, whereas an English man will drink very differently to an Italian man. And then as we touched on earlier, the age divide, this is one of the big shifts this change, what they're calling alcohol polarisation. So it's from Gen X, kind of 40-something upwards, people are drinking as much as they ever have, if not more. But if you once you get below about 26, 27 years old, you've got this real fall-off, and that's fascinating. And that's to do with rise of wellness culture, it's to do with the rise of technology, and the way people are curating their lives very differently. But honestly, a lot of the experts I spoke to say that they're still not really sure why that's happening, but it is definitely happening. Now, accompanying your article, and you make mention of it, were, if you like, the downside elements of drinking. And I think maybe we should go through. You've talked about the uh, numbers of deaths uh, during the pandemic year from alcoholism having gone up, and one presumes that that is mostly amongst people who are already probably classified as alcoholics uh, and so on, but just were having an even worse time. But there are other uh, statistics, aren't there, like hospitalizations and so on? There are, yeah. Heavy drinking costs the NHS about £3.5 billion a year. I think something like 40% of violent incidents recorded are thought to involve someone who's under the influence of alcohol. So alcohol is often involved in some of the worst things that happen in our society. Part of what I wanted to do with this piece, is sort of looking at the way we drink now, was to sort of understand why we're so dependent on it, or many of us, obviously not everyone, but what does it say about our national character that we need this kind of drug, this lubricant, to allow us to have fun, to allow us to relax, to allow us to talk to each other, express ourselves honestly. For a lot of people, and I'd probably put myself somewhat in this category, life would be incredibly dull, or would feel like it would be incredibly dull if we didn't drink. So you have the sharp end of people who are really suffering, whether as victims of alcohol-related crimes or through their own health. But you also have this kind of broader societal dependency, which some people think is fine. Alcohol is a big part of many cultures, and maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it does fuel fun and creativity and friendship and what they call the chemical handshake, which allows us to get to know each other. Other people think it's pathetic, and that we're a nation of louts and idiots who don't know how to enjoy ourselves without taking this drug. You were born, brought up into a Jewish background in which there was not much boozing done. Although, by my recollection, a lot of those households did manage to socialise and be fairly happy and achieve fairly much. But nevertheless, you didn't. And then you went to university. This memory I have very clearly, and I actually talked about it with my, 
my best mate who I was recording said to me, this is my sort of freshest week at university. So I was sort of grown up in quite a sort of tight knit, relatively conservative Jewish household in London. And I arrived at university and my very English friend who became my best friend for life. And one of the first things he said to me was he was trying to persuade me to go to the pub instead of going to a lecture or whatever it was. And I said, well, I just didn't fancy it. And he looked at me and said, you just don't like pubs enough. And I thought, gosh, I'm going to have to like pubs more, aren't I, to to fit in here? I want to hang out with this guy. He's great. So I sort of almost willed myself into becoming a habitual drinker. Previously, I'd drunk at parties or whatever, but not just of an afternoon. That was quite alien to me. So I, I kind of almost willed myself into becoming a habitual drinker as a form of acceptance, really. And that was what was happening in my head. And, and it felt to me like part of becoming a, a proper Englishman. I know that sounds a little strange, but that was, that was kind of how I thought of it at the time. I brought it up with him and he said, oh, I didn't mean that at all. I just really wanted to go to the pub. <laughs> but I definitely became a kind of a, a, a habitual drinker then. And, and it felt to me like part of becoming a, a proper Englishman. I know that sounds a little strange, but that was, that was kind of how I thought of it at the time. I understood consciously or subconsciously at the time that there was a culture and that I wanted to flourish in that culture and that would involve a change in my approach to drinking and, and let's be honest oh yes I put on weight and missed a lot of essay deadlines so it definitely wasn't overall good for me in that way but I had a lot of fun and I did make a lot of friends and a lot of those people are still my friends so I wouldn't necessarily change it if I went back but it de- definitely was a, a sort of conscious shift on my part. I don't want to give you the third degree, but I'm bound to ask this after you just said that. Do you feel you wouldn't have made those friends if you hadn't become a heavy drinker? I've got a very dear friend from that group who doesn't drink and gave up in about our second year of university. I think because he he was very academic and saw the effect it was having on the rest of us. And he's very much still a very dear friend and and a part of everyone's lives. But I think he would say to me, I know that not giving up drinking has cost me socially, that he's been less a part of things. Because really, for for all our 20s, I don't think we socialised without drinking in any meaningful way. So if you didn't, either you'd come and then get a bit bored and fed up by about 10pm, or maybe you wouldn't fancy it because you knew what was going to happen. It definitely does change the way you connect to, to a heavy drinking society. Have you ever thought, since you were at university, that possibly you were drinking too much? I know that my parents have. For me, it's often been connected to sort of weight and health. I've persistently been a couple of stone overweight since university. I know that that's at least partially down to drinking. I've never felt like it was really impinging on my life. For all of that, I habituated myself to English drinking at university. I still don't have that kind of, I'm not an addict. I don't have that kind of alcoholic's hunger. I can easily go five days without having a drink if I fancy it. So it's not a deep, deep urge in me in the way it is in in a lot of other people. I also wonder whether you, as you were doing the piece, you thought about the double standard we have with other drugs. I mean, if we can imagine that there was another drug which caused quite so many hospitalizations, that caused quite so many lost ambulance hours, that was responsible for quite so many assault incidents, that we would turn around and say, yeah, but, you know, it's all good fun. No, I don't think we would. I think Partly, alcohol's just so ingrained in our culture and, and has been for such a long time that we, we aren't even really willing to have that debate. Whereas you compare it to, say, marijuana, which hasn't been a central part of 
British culture, but is probably much less harmful, frankly, although obviously has its own issues around mental health and all that sort of thing. But it's much less addictive, certainly. You know, we're just not willing to go there with booze. And I think too many of us enjoy it too much, is the honest truth. It's that old Winston Churchill line. He said, I think I got more out of alcohol than alcohol got out of me. You know, and Winston Churchill drank a lot more than most. But I would say that's probably been true of my life. But it is a difficult balance to maintain because I remember people always talk about the great Christopher Hitchens. The word is out, you know, that I sort of can't manage without a glass in hand. I can take a cocktail if I, if I have to. And I think it's certainly very rude to refuse it if, if it's offered. And so, you know, he was one of the great drinkers. And I think that food tastes much better with wine. Um, I think a, a meal without wine is like a day without sunshine. But towards the end of his life, maybe it was starting to get more out of him than he was getting out of it. They said the same about Kingsley Amos, who wrote the great everyday drinking and the kind of Bible of, of British cocktails. And, and at the end of his life, people said, well, Kingsley became a bit of a drunk. It's a difficult balance to maintain that, isn't it? You mean it's fun until it isn't fun anymore? Well, quite, until it's controlling you and you think you're still controlling it, which we do see happen quite often, sadly. Given what we know about the effects of alcohol and the toll it takes, what did Josh make of the drinkers out in Sheffield? Because it was so specific, this timing, sort of end of lockdown, a part of me was just really thrilled to see people having fun again. We ended up in a nightclub and... People were bellowing there along to the songs and downing shots. And, and it made me a bit nostalgic for my student years. And we all went for cheesy chips and kebabs afterwards. It's another sort of three inches on the waistline. But beyond just a night pining for his youth, Josh got a chance to look at how enmeshed drinking is in British culture. What I found really fascinating was that you know, coming from America and Washington DC, it's actually not the case that people in America drink much less than they do in Britain. In fact, we drink less than a lot of Germans, Spanish, French, Italians. We're quite mid-table as a country. And yet, the relationship, the culture around it is very different. It's that we're sort of in love with it, or many of us are. And I think that's what my trip to Sheffield reminded me of, is that it's not how much we drink necessarily, but how we drink, uh, and this difficult, tortured love affair we have with alcohol. There's almost a cult around it at times in people's lives. That struck me as not uniquely British, but quite profoundly British. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times special correspondent, Josh Clancy. You can find all of Josh's reporting at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Poppy Damon and Edward Drummond. The executive producer today was James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes@thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.